0: podcasting from the heartland of america in the state of missouri this is recovering faith a show about increasing or regaining faith trusting god when it doesn't appear to make sense to do so and coming to christianity from a non-christian or pseudo-christian worldview i am your host gene curl and i wholeheartedly welcome you to this show hello and welcome back Anyone who knows me personally, or anyone who is a regular listener, knows that a while back I completely lost my faith for a few years and I identified as an atheist. I think a lot of Christians mistakenly think that there is only one reason a person would ever become an atheist, and that reason is that they hate God and all that is good, and they are living a life contrary to the gospel, a life with no morals full of the most vile and perverse actions and beliefs, a life devoid of love, hope, happiness, or anything that is good. Most Christians believe that only such a life would cause a person to turn from God, but as with most issues in life, it is far more complex than it is made out to be by some. I used to be one of those Christians that believed that, that believed that there is only one reason people would be atheists, that is, until I lost my faith. And now, I've known lots of atheist people that, while I can't say that they had the same moral standards as Christians, I have known a lot of atheist people that were actually, as far as the world goes, pretty good people. The God of the way to help people and whatnot. Anyhow, uh, when I was young, I had an unshaken faith, despite all the horrors that I had to put up with daily in my life. I always thought that I didn't understand why God would allow some things to happen, but that he must have a good reason. When I went to college and decided that I was smart, I started to see fewer reasons for a belief in God, and I started to let my questions as to why God would allow some things to happen become reasons why God might not exist in the first place. I also had professors pushing me away from the reassurance of faith into the chasm of doubt and the worldview that offered no peace, no safety, no security, and not even a reason for existence or the possibility of something better after this life. I had atheist uh, professors that seemed that their one goal in life was to make sure that everyone they encountered would lose their faith and become an atheist and believe that anything you did was right, that there was no moral absolutes, and that when you die, that's it, you're just gone. There's no consciousness that exists after death. Now, I will not make the blanket statement that this is true of all people or even most people, but when I started down the road toward belief, I changed or toward unbelief I mean, I changed as a person, and not for the better a desire to do what is wrong is not what inspired me to abandon faith and become an atheist but losing my faith did change me and as a result i did a lot of things that i previously thought were wrong as an atheist the more i struggled to make sense of the world in my existence the more depressed and hopeless i became unlike the narrow view of atheism that i used to espouse i now know based on my own experiences and those of people i know and the people that I have talked to, that there is more than one reason why people lose or abandon faith. I have learned that people identify as atheists for one or more of the following five reasons. These reasons are not ranked in order of importance or a statistical probability, etc., but simply in a manner that made sense to me. Reason number one. People are atheists because they were raised without religion or spiritual teachings, and as a natural result, they have no belief in God and think such a belief to be silly at best. When a person is raised to believe in a certain way, it is difficult to believe in any other way. For a person raised without belief, it makes as much sense to them to believe in or pray to a god as it does to think that, that there are storms because someone angered the Greek gods, and Zeus in particular. To a person raised without religion or belief in the supernatural, one claim is just as unlikely and difficult to believe as all others. The way you, as an adult, would look at another adult who firmly believes in a tooth fairy or Santa Claus is the way people who were raised without faith look at those of us who believe. Imagine, if you will, that there was a person who absolutely believed in that unicorns are real and that unicorns were had all these rules for us now imagine it goes a step farther that you lived in a society where everybody believed in unicorns and they believed that the unicorns hated certain things and like the unicorns didn't want you to eat meat and the unicorns only wanted you to eat grass and uh, you couldn't wear the color yellow because unicorns hated it and so forth and so on and all these laws were based on these beliefs I would imagine that you as a rational person would be extremely upset at these rules uh, being forced on you because of some ridiculous belief somebody else had and that is exactly the way atheist people feel about Christians trying to push laws that affect them because see to atheists it's not because they hate God, well some of them do, but most of them simply believe there is no God and they get really upset when Christian people try to push these laws because they feel that they're being forced to participate in something they don't believe in it's like the whole world is trying to force them to believe in God and that never works the second reason why people lose their faith is because they have experienced hardships or abuse at the hands of religious people and judge the whole of religion on those who have wronged them or the people they care about. And the problem is compounded when religious leaders or other religious people hide, condone, or justify those actions. I would have to imagine that a lot of people have become atheists as a result of all the child abuse and subsequent cover-ups in the Catholic Church and a lot of people will continue to leave the Catholic Church as a result, many of which will lose faith in God and people, and not just the Church. People who are disenfranchised and disgusted by religion will raise another generation of people who share their disdain for religion and God, which is on a whole other level than those who just don't believe. My father died when I was in my mid-twenties. And in all those years I knew him, I don't think we ever had a conversation that didn't include God in some way. My father brought God into everything, even if he had to shoehorn it in. But for all of his preaching, he was not a righteous man or even a good man. My father was an extremely abusive person who took his frustrations out on anybody who was weaker than he was, and I was his target on many occasions even when I didn't personally do anything to anger him. My father was also extremely abusive verbally, which most of the time hurt worse than the beatings, but for a good measure he would always verbally abuse me whether or not there was any physical violence. To the best of my knowledge, my father never touched me in a sexually inappropriate manner, but he did accept money from strangers to give them the opportunity to do so. I felt so dirty and worthless that I never wanted anyone to know about it. My mother didn't even know about it until I told her when I was in my early 30s. I often wondered why God would allow such abuse to happen to a child, and I knew that other people suffered more as a child than I did, and I personally know people who have had it much worse than I did. There came a point when I could no longer reconcile the apparent contradictions of God being all-knowing, all-powerful, all-loving, and still allowing such horrible things to happen to the innocent, even those who believe in Him. The third reason people lose their faith or find it difficult to believe is their academic pursuits have made it difficult, if not impossible, to believe in the claims of religion. Many people decide on their own, as a result of academic study, that there is no God, but there are also many professors who make up their life goals to destroy faith and strive to get every one of his or her students to lose faith and join the ranks of atheism, which is currently the fastest grow, uh, system of belief in the world. I had several of the before mentioned varieties of professors, one of which flat out said that she would be pleased if every one of her students lost his or her faith by the conclusion of the semester. This lady would make a dig at religion every class period. Everything she could find that would even slightly discredit religion. She'd wind up talking about it in class. And if anybody said anything in their papers uh, that per class that would in any way take up religion, uh, they would lose points. I honestly don't know what happened to this lady, but she was a tenured professor, so she's probably still there. A lot of scientists are without faith, many of whom have reasoned himself or herself out of faith by their academic research and decided, with all the collective knowledge possessed by the scientific community, that there is no longer a need for a belief in God or the supernatural. Carl Sagan, the famed American astronomer, cosmologist, astrophysicist, astrobiologist, author, science popularizer, and science communicator in astronomy and other natural sciences, once likened the belief of God to a person making the claim that he or she had an invisible dragon in the garage. Suppose I'm following a group therapy approach by the psychologist Richard Franklin. Uh, Suppose I seriously make such an assertion to you that I have a fire-breathing dragon that lives in my garage. Surely you'd want to check it out, see for yourself. There have been innumerable stories of dragons over the centuries, but no real evidence. What an opportunity. Show me, you say. I lead you to my garage. You look inside and see a ladder, empty paint cans, an old tricycle, but no dragon. Where's the dragon, you ask? Oh, she's right here, I wave vaguely, I neglect to mention that she's an invisible dragon. You, uh, you propose spreading flour on the floor of the garage to capture the dragon's footprints. Good idea, I say, but this dragon floats in the air. Then you'll use an infrared sensor to detect the invisible fire. Good idea, but the invisible fire is also heatless. You'll spray paint, uh, you'll spray paint the dragon to make her visible. Good idea but she's an incorporeal dragon and the paint won't stick, and so on. I counter every physical test you propose with a special explanation as to why it won't work. Now, what's the difference between an invisible incorporeal floating dragon who spits heatless fire and no dragon at all? If there's no way to disprove my contention, no conceivable experiment that would count against it, what does it mean to say that my dragon exists? Your inability to invalidate my hypothesis is not at all the same thing as proving it true. Claims that cannot be tested, assertions immune to disproof, are vertically worthless. Whatever value they may have in inspiring us or exciting our sense of wonder. What I'm asking you to do comes down to believing. In the absence of evidence, on my say-so, the only thing you've really learned from my insistence that there's a dragon in my garage is that something funny is going on inside my head. You'd wonder if no physical tests apply, what convinced me? The possibility that it was a dream or a hallucination would certainly enter your mind. But then, why am I taking it so seriously? Maybe I need help. At the least, maybe I've seriously underestimated human fallibility. Imagine that, despite none of the tests being successful, you wish to be scrupulously open-minded. So you don't outright reject the notion that there's a fire-breathing dragon in my garage. You merely put it on hold. Present evidence, uh, present evidence is strongly against it, but if a new body of data emerges, you're prepared to examine it and see if it convinces you. Surely it's unfair of me to be offended at not being believed or to criticize you for being stodgy and unimaginative merely because you rendered the Scottish verdict of not proved. Imagine that things had gone otherwise. The dragon is still invisible, alright, but footprints prints are being made in the flower as you watch. Your infrared detector reads off the scale. The spray paint reveals a jagged crest bobbing in the air before you. No matter how skeptical you might have been about the existence of dragons, to say nothing about the invisible ones, you must now acknowledge there is something there. And that, in a preliminary way, it is consistent with an invisible fire-breathing dragon. Now another scenario. Suppose it's not just me. Suppose that several people of your acquaintance, including people that you're pretty sure don't know each other, all tell you they have dragons in their garages but in every case, the evidence is maddeningly elusive. All of us admit we're disturbed at being gripped by so odd a conviction, so ill-supported by the physical evidence. None of us is a lunatic. We speculate about what it would mean if an invisible dragons were really hiding out in our garages all over the world, with us humans just catching on. I'd rather it not be true, I tell you, but maybe all those ancient European and Christian myths about dragons weren't myths after all. Gratifyingly, some dragon-sized footprints in the flower are now reported, but they are never made when any skeptic is looking. An alternative explanation presents itself. On close examination, it seems clear that the footprints could have been faked. Another dragon enthusiast shows up with a burnt finger and attributes it to a rare physical manifestation of the dragon's fiery breath. But again, other possibilities exist. We understand that there are other ways to burn fingers besides the breath of invisible dragons. Such evidence, no matter how important the dragon advocates consider it, is far from compelling. Once again, the only sensible approach is tentatively to reject the dragon hypothesis, to be open to future physical data, and to wonder what the cause might be so that many apparently sane and sober people share the same strong delusion. And that is The um, Invisible Dragon in the Garage by Carl Sagan. And basically what he was getting at is that he's saying that there's no proof for God and therefore until it can be proved you might as well not believe it. And that is the approach that a lot of people have and that is why a lot of people are atheists or even agnostic. It's just because they don't see any suitable evidence to prove there's a God. And any of the evidence that has been presented to them, they don't consider it to be real evidence. You have to admit that there are aspects of faith that just have to be believed, otherwise it wouldn't be faith. It would be a knowledge. It would be something that you could teach in science. The fourth reason people lose their faith or find it difficult to believe is something has happened in their life that made it difficult, if not impossible, to believe in God. While this can overlap with reason number two, for this entry, I am mostly considering those who have lost their desire or ability to believe in God because of a major tragedy in their life, such as the loss of a loved one, especially the loss of a child, a natural disaster or war. It is an, it's natural to wonder where God was during all the hardships and why he didn't prevent it, and many never recover from that and their temporary doubt becomes a life of unbelief after i had lost my faith i wrote an article in response to a piece i saw in the newspaper about a community that had suffered a devastating tornado praising god for his kindness and sparing so many people and i called the piece thank you for not beating me harder daddy the point i was making in the piece was that if god was a good father then instead of sparing a few people in the tragedy he would have prevented it altogether after all, he is supposed to be all-knowing and all-powerful. Many times during that season in my life when I struggled with faith, I quoted the famous lines by the Greek philosopher Epicurus. Is God willing to prevent evil but not able? Then he is not omnipotent. Is he able but not willing? Then he is malevolent. Is he both able and willing? Then whence cometh evil? Is he neither able nor willing? Then why call him God? And last but not least, the fifth reason people abandon their faith is their life choices are at odds with the teachings of religion, and they choose not to believe in religion or God so that they don't have to justify their actions and choices or to feel bad about them. I personally know people who first started living a life that Christians don't agree with. Then, slowly, they changed and then they came out and said that they didn't believe in God. And a short time later, they made some major changes in their life, such as a sex change. With every step they took away from religion, they hated religion more and more, and everything that it stood for. For me, it was all but the last reason that made me lose my faith in God, as I never did uh, have any great desire to do anything that Christians really consider a sin that I just wanted to do and wanted to justify and so that was not my reason at all. Uh, I lost my faith because of all the things that would happen, and I couldn't reconcile all this bad things, all of these bad things happening in life, with there being a good, loving God. Even when I got to the point where I hated religion and everything it stands for, and I was outspoken against it, I still secretly wished that I could believe in God. I have said many times that there have been times in my life when I have had no doubt there is a God, and there have been times in my life when I was absolutely convinced there is no God, but there has never been a time in my life where I didn't care either way. I have, for as long as I can remember, been fascinated by religion, even obsessed at times. I remember listening to a preacher on the radio when I was a kid, or a lot of preachers on the radio, actually. And it wasn't because anyone wanted me to or made me do it, but because I was genuinely interested in what they had to say, and I wanted to know more about God and the Bible. The first time I read the Bible cover to cover, I was 10 years old. Part of the reason I started reading the Bible was to see if the story of Moses happened like it did in the Charleston Heston movie, The Ten Commandments. And in case you're wondering, it didn't. I also wanted to read the Bible to see if it said what my father said it did. It didn't. Those of you who are regular listeners or readers will recall that my father was a minister. But despite all of his self-righteousness, he was at least a few counties away from any conduct that could be considered holy or righteous. I often wondered why God would let such a vile and perverse man claim to be his mouthpiece. In addition to my father, my college experiences, and all the suffering in the world. Some other reasons for the loss of my faith are how hypocritical, judgmental, hurtful, and condescending Christians can be. People trying to force me to believe, my wife trying to force me to believe, and our failed marriage. The con artist televangelists, the blatant lies that some of the people some of the popular Christian apologists such as Kent Hovind use, to support their claims. And of course, there are things in the Bible that are not easily reconciled. It seemed that whenever I started considering faith or religion in a positive manner, some quick Christians would run it for me. On many occasions, Christians would quote scripture to me in an attempt to convince me that I was going to hell if I didn't see it their way, which is never going to win a person over, by the way. Whenever a person, or whenever a verse was misquoted to me, I would quote it properly and then quote a verse that would put the person's actions into question and told them if they were going to try to condemn me with the Bible, they had better at least quote it properly. I would then proceed to tell them that they should be ashamed of themselves to have an atheist know the Bible better than they do. At any rate, telling an atheist that he or she is going to hell because they don't believe the in or live the Bible is about as effective as a child keeping you from going to work by telling you that the floor is lava and that you will die if you step on it. While I am on the subject of things that don't help, Anytime you approach a person in a hateful or condescending manner, he or she will close off and won't listen to a single thing you have to say. But if you approach them in love, then the encounter will have a more positive effect. Even if they don't initially listen to your message, it may touch them and they, some da- way, sometime down the road what you said might make a difference to them. But if you're rude or if you are condescending or anything like that, When they think about it down the road, it'll just help reinforce their idea that Christians are bad. I know it's a cliché, but no one cares how much you know until they know how much you care. One day, I met a pastor in Des Moines, Iowa, who said the only reason he didn't murder me, rip my hat off and feed it to his dogs, and then defecate down the hole in my neck while laughing was because he didn't want to go to jail. He said, going to jail was the only reason he didn't do that. First off, that was the most horrible thing anyone has ever said to me, and this man was not being a good example of Christ by any stretch of the imagination. Secondly, for a man who claimed to believe in the Bible, he sure was not concerned with the manner in which it says a person should live, or the place it says we will go if we don't. Many Christians also treat those who don't believe as if they are subhuman, which is not even remotely like loving your neighbor like Jesus said we should do. Some of the many things that don't help non-believers want to believe are being treated poorly for not believing, being threatened for lack of belief, having friends who make belief a stipulation for continued friendship, saying, I'll pray for you in a condescending way, or making church ultimatums. If you're wondering what a church ultimatum is, I have a good example. When I was married, my wife would tell me that I had the choice not to go to church, but made it crystal clear that if I chose not to go to church, I was also choosing for my life to be a living hell once she got home from church. She was basically saying that I could either go to church with her and things would be peaceful, or I could stay home from church And she would make sure that I was miserable once she got home. Which wasn't much of a choice. There is a classic western movie called Shane. And the movie is about this gunfighter that helps out some uh, homesteaders to fight against this uh, ruthless ranch that's trying to kill them and run them all out so they can have more room for their cattle. In the opening scene of the movie, Shane shows up at a homesteader's property and is almost and almost immediately after he showed up. The ranchers who wanted to run the homesteaders out are seen coming from a distance so the homesteader assumes that Shane is one of them and points a gun at him and tells him to get off his property. Do you mind putting that gun down? Shane asks. Then I'll leave. What difference does it make? You're leaving anyway, the homesteader says. I'd like it to be my idea Shane responds. I think that is a basic human response. We don't like to feel that we are being forced into anything, and even if we know something is not our idea, we like the privilege of at least thinking that it was. Trying to force a person to go to church will not win them over as a Christian, it will just make him or her resentful. Trust me, I know. From my own personal experience, I can say that some of the things that do help a person want to test the waters of belief are being a good example of the god you claim to serve loving without judgment and showing how a belief in god has made your life better people want and need to know what is in it for them if they change their life and if you are showing them a life worse than the one they are living they are never going to change the most important thing is to never stop praying for them though it is not always a good idea to tell the person you are praying for him or her They may take it in the wrong way and think you're being condescending, think that you're judging them. You can't change a person's heart, only God can do that, but you can help the process by showing love instead of judgment and hate. I shared the story in a previous episode, but it was a religious group I encountered through work that set me on the path back to God, even though they had no idea that I didn't believe and they had no idea that they were helping me. Always be a good example of Christ, because you never know who or how your example will help or hurt. Thanks for listening. God bless you, and I'll catch you next time. Thanks for listening to the Recovering Faith Podcast. If you haven't already, subscribe so you never miss an episode. A new episode goes live every Wednesday. If you have questions, comments, have suggestions for a future episode, or if you would like to be a guest, you can contact me through my website, GeneCurl.com. Remember, it's Gene, like the unit of biological heredity, and Curl, like a curl on your head. Please leave a review on iTunes, Google Play, or whichever streaming service you use. God bless you and keep you till the next episode.